what is Christian fasting? Why do we do it? How do we do it? And how are we going to do it as a church? I know what you're thinking as we get started. There's an elephant in the room, isn't there? Kids, do you know what I mean by that? Doesn't mean I somehow acquired an elephant and he's here in my home. That would be crazy. I have no literal elephant. If there was one here, we'd all see it. But what if there was an elephant here in this camera shot and I didn't acknowledge it? It would be pretty distracting, wouldn't it? We'd all know that it was here, we'd all see it, and then I'd just keep talking. An elephant in the room is something obvious that's unacknowledged. Well, as I start a sermon on fasting, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Dave. You love food. You're always talking about food, and now you're going to talk about not eating food? Well, yes, indeed. Ironic, I know. It's the elephant in the room, so I thought I'd point it out in the beginning. It's true. I may be an expert in eating burgers and biryani, but I'm no expert in fasting. I don't come to you having grand experiences of fasting that I'm going to wax eloquently about. I'm not here to share my heroic tales of fasting. In fact, the first time I tried fasting was during my university days, and it was a bit of a disaster for me and my friend. I was ministering in the country of Jordan for the summer, and my teammate Baird asked me if I would fast with him for three days, drinking only water and juice. I thought, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Why not? Well, the fast started, and we were starving, but we pressed on. And then one night, I heard a rumbling from the kitchen at 3 a.m., Thinking maybe a burglar entered our house, I got up boldly ready to karate chop our intruder. I sneaked over to the kitchen, flipped on the lights, and there he was. My fasting friend Baird sitting on the kitchen counter in complete darkness eating leftover pizza. He was caught red-handed. He was the burglar. Now, in full disclosure, lest you think this is a pastor's hero story, I didn't fare much better. While I was judging Baird on his midnight buffet, I was reminded of Romans 2. You who judge are condemned because you practice the same things. I may not have eaten pizza during the fast, but I wasn't consumed with communion with God and filling my heart with his promises, but in drinking as much juice as I could. And since mango juice was the most filling, I must have drank 20 cartons of mango juice in three days. There's always a loophole, and I was on a crazy sugar high the whole time. I'm not an expert on fasting. It's been a rocky road for me, and I'm still learning. And so we're going to be on this journey together. And today we want to hear what the Bible says about fasting. We want to look to God's Word. This is a topical sermon. Our normal practice is expositional preaching. It's where we take one particular passage, and we preach the point of that passage is the point of the sermon. A topical sermon doesn't just take one passage and explain it, it takes a topic, in this case fasting, and it looks to see what the whole Bible has to say about it. From time to time, a topical sermon can be very helpful for the church, and that's what we'll do today. Well, let's jump in. Our outline will be the four questions I started the sermon with. What is Christian fasting? Why do Christians fast? How do Christians fast? And finally, how are we going to fast? Well, that's where we're headed today. Our first question, what is Christian fasting? Well, many world religions have some practice of fasting, and Christian fasting is no different in this regard. It's a refraining from food. We see it all over the scriptures. It was commanded in the Old Testament in conjunction with the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. This was the day the high priest made a sacrifice 
and the Holy of Holies for the sins of the people. Later on in Israel's history, after the exile out of the Promised Land, there were four other annual fasts. Zechariah 8, verse 19 tells us about this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. There were other times of corporate fasting where congregations or even entire peoples fasted. Judges 20 verse 26 says, then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Joel 2, 15 and 16 is an example of an entire congregation fasting. Esther chapter 4, verse 16 describes a three-day fast for all the Jews in Susa when they were under the threat of annihilation. Nehemiah 9 describes a fast by the entire nation of Israel. Now, there were also individual fasts. In 2 Samuel 12, David fasts after his child became sick. He lays all night on the ground, and when he finds out his child had died, he says in verse 22, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Now, fasting is all over the scriptures. We haven't even gotten into the New Testament yet but it would probably be helpful for us to stop before going any further and give a definition. So here's my definition adapted from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here it is. Fasting is abstinence from food for some special spiritual purpose. But the key here is that fasting is abstaining from food for a special spiritual purpose. But we need to clarify exactly what we mean by spiritual purpose, because as I've said already, many religions and even the non-religious engage in fasting at times. So let me give us three things fasting is not. Distinctly, Christian fasting isn't to lose weight or to gain health. Now, training to be a ninja, well, that could be a good thing. Getting healthy honors God. Intermittent fasting is all the rage. Skipping a meal for a medical procedure is wise. There are fasts from red meat. Pescatarians eat only fish and no meat. Vegetarians don't eat any meat or fish. There are all kinds of diets and fasts. You know what I wish there were? Dessertarians. I would be one of those if possible kids. Wouldn't that be great? All you ate was dessert. Ice cream, donuts, cinnamon rolls, all day, every day. But I suppose that wouldn't help with our weight or health either. Though fasting for health-centered reasons is not what we mean by a Christian fast. Well, second thing, the spiritual purpose of fasting is not to gain favor with God. This is really important. The scriptures are clear that there's no way to gain acceptance with God, fasting included. Romans 3 tells us that we're justified, which means declared righteous and saved by grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Later on in chapter 5, Paul says that while we were weak, while we were still sinners, and even while we were his enemies, it was then that we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ. Now, fasting can't earn us extra grace or save us, and it certainly doesn't cleanse us of our sin or earn us points with God. Only God could save us. Well, Luke 18, 9 through 14 reveals this truth. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Listen to these words. Two men, they went up 
to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, he stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, friends, we need mercy and grace. Fasting twice a week or any other potentially good thing is not good enough. If the motive to fast is to earn something from God, then it's not a biblical fast. Or a third thing, fasting isn't a hunger strike that twists God's arm to act. Fasting doesn't automatically do someone's spiritual good. We don't use God for our purposes or to coerce him into acting. We don't rule over God. We can't twist his arm to act for us. This would be to put ourselves above God, above the God of the scriptures. It would be to make ourselves God. And we don't fast to just get stuff we want. We fast for a spiritual purpose. Well, what then is this spiritual purpose? What's the why behind the what? What's well, the second question we wanna to ask today? Number two, why do Christians fast? Well, let me share eight reasons. There are more, but we have to stop somewhere. We can't go on all day. We have to get to our lunch after the sermon. Some of you got that humor. If you didn't, it'll come to you later today. The first reason we fast is that fasting can be done for spiritual growth. Many of us have had the wrong idea about fasting. Author Don Whitney calls fasting the most feared and misunderstood of all the spiritual disciplines. A spiritual discipline is not something that magically produces something else as if you can do it and then this thing automatically appears that wasn't there. Spiritual discipline like prayer or Bible reading or fasting doesn't guarantee a certain product, but here's what it does. It puts you in a place for God to do a work in and through you. A spiritual discipline is a means of grace. You're putting yourself in a position for God to work. Now you notice this happening when you start your day off, you get out the Bible and you start reading and you pray. Yesterday I was praying through Colossians chapter three and the Lord just stirred my heart to seek the things that are above, not the things on this earth. See, the discipline of Bible reading and prayer, it put myself in a position for God to begin to stir my heart. Our Christians fast in order for God to work in us. One of the ways God does this is by helping us identify idols in our lives, one of which might be food. Have you ever thought that the way you treat food could be idolatrous? Some of us have a problem with eating. Our stomachs are sovereign, and we spend too much time obsessing over eating, thinking about what we want to eat, meditating on eating, reflecting on what we have eaten or could eat. Now, in our fasting, we're able to ask ourselves, is Jesus better than breakfast? Is he better than our food? See, in our time of fasting, our sin often comes on full display, doesn't it? Have you noticed that sometimes when you're hungry, you start getting angry? Kids, tweens, teens, you've noticed this, right? In your own life and maybe in your parents' lives. Do you know what it's called when you get hungry and angry? It's called getting hangry. You have hanger. And when you're feeling tired and on edge and when you're hangry, what or who do you blame? Well, it's kind of silly, isn't it? You don't 
like to blame yourself. So instead you look down and you blame your stomach. I'm hangry, my stomach made me do it. Now, you might not put it in those words, but that's what you mean. And we think the answer is eating and finding satisfaction in food. And while eating is good, and it will help us in the short term, we'll always get hungry again. Now, the long-term answer is God. Our physical hunger is only bringing out to the surface what's going on inside of us. Hanger is not the result of our circumstances. Our circumstances merely bring out on display what's true of our hearts. Our hunger is an opportunity to reveal our hearts. Uh, Arthur, or author Richard Foster writes that fasting reveals the things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger, and then we know, though, that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. It was already there. When we fast, we get to look in a mirror and see more clearly. We can see those things that we've been trusting in instead of God. Fasting forces us to ask repeatedly, do I really hunger for God? Well, Pastor John Piper has said, the only thing that will help us in our hunger for food and other things is a deeper hunger for God. The hope is by increasing our appetite for food, we'll increase our soul's appetite for God. He's the answer. Spiritual growth. Well, another reason we fast is for spiritual guidance. That's number two. Fasting can be done for spiritual guidance. In Judges 20, as the Israelites were going on their way to Bethel, they sat and they wept. They needed guidance and they needed help on what to do. And so they fasted all day. They asked God for direction. Now, fasting doesn't ensure we get a word from the Lord as to what to do exactly, but it's often in these times when we put ourselves in a position of receptivity that God guides us. The church leaders fasted in Acts chapter 13 in the moment where they were to choose church planters. Listen to these words. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, now listen to that. Then after fasting and praying, after that they laid hands on them and they sent them off. I mean, this, friends, was a huge decision, one that had great impact. And so they fasted, Lord, please, Lord, please tell us who to send. And the Holy Spirit said, send Saul, later called Paul, and Barnabas. The leaders later fasted in Acts 14 as they appointed elders for the church. Serious decisions demanded focused prayer. Well, the same is true in our lives. Do we take this job in a new city? Do we marry this person? Do I start this ministry? Do I start this business? Do I buy this home? Do I put my child in this school? Do I go help this church plan? Who do I focus on in sharing the gospel with? Big questions. And we fast for guidance. Number three, fasting can be done to express grief. In 2 Samuel 1, Saul, the king, and his son Jonathan are killed. David and his men, they tear their clothes, they weep, and they fast until evening. We can express our grief in fasting. In these days of COVID-19, we grieve pain, we grieve death, and we can do it by fasting. We can fast to grieve the systemic racism we've seen for the death of George Floyd in the US, for others suffering racism in our home countries, we can fast and grieve disease, chronic pain. In this past week, word came that Pastor Tim Keller has serious life-threatening cancer. For many of us who've been impacted by him, that's devastating news. He's been a mentor. We grieve and we pray. We grieve and mourn 
those Christian leaders who've passed away. Many of us are saddened at the passing of apologist Ravi Zacharias this past month. I read an article this week about Pastor Emmanuel and his wife Juliana who were murdered while working their farm in Nigeria. In their home state, Taraba State, they were attacked in the midst of a tribal conflict between two peoples. They leave behind a fruitful gospel ministry along with eight beautiful children. Oh, we grieve, we grieve sickness, racism, injustice, cancer, and death. Thankfully, our grief isn't grounded in sadness, but in hope. Our fasting reminds us that our hope is built upon Christ, the solid rock. Well, we can also fast to express repentance. That's a fourth reason. When we're convicted of our sin, we can fast as a sign of our repentance. When we do this, we're not paying for our sins by refraining from eating. This is not penance, but repentance. Two very different things. Penance pays, repentance turns and accepts grace. First Peter 3 says that Christ has already suffered once for sins and made the full payment. There's nothing else we owe. Instead, we can fast by mourning how our rebellion brought Jesus to the cross. Author Don Whitney says, there have been a few occasions when I grieved so deeply over my sin that words alone seemed powerless to say to God what I wanted. And though it made me no more worthy of forgiveness, fasting communicated the grief and confession my words could not. Daniel chapter nine, verses three through five is a good example of this. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas of mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from his commandments and rules. Well, a fifth reason. A fifth reason we fast, fasting can be done for deliverance or protection. In 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat, he gets word, a big army is coming against Judah from Edom. It was a terrifying moment. There likely be just hugely outmatched, but instead of hiding, instead of looking to his own strength, he inquired of the Lord and declared a fast for all of Judah, everyone. And God gave them victory. He gave them direction. He gave them a plan. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, a fast was proclaimed for safety. Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before the Lord to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, all our goods. Now, fasting should be a line of defense against persecution. It should be our plan for protection from sickness. It should be our posture in times of need. Well, number six, fasting can be done for heavenly rewards. We live not for this world, but for the next. Now, in Matthew 6, Jesus actually says, when you fast, don't do it in order for others to think highly of you. Do it for God. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a spiritual and heavenly reward for fasting. This is not a bad motivation. Now, it's not to save us, but in some way, there's heavenly and spiritual rewards. I think C.S. Lewis puts it well. He wrote, there are rewards that do not sully or ruin motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love for exercise less interested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. Well, the greatest reward we get for pursuing Christ is we get Christ. We get more of him. We want that reward. 
and we get it when we pursue him. Well, another reason we fast is because fasting can change things. Number seven, fasting can change the world. God has moved in this world through the fasting of his people. We saw this already, Acts 13, the choosing of Paul and Barnabas. One could have thought, well, you know, we're just choosing a couple of men to go, go out and do ministry, no big deal. But the Lord was using that decision to change the world. They knew it was a big thing to send out church planters, and so they fasted and God led them. It was an epic moment. I read a story this week about Dr. Jun Gon Kim of Seoul, Korea. Dr. Kim was the chairman of an evangelistic crusade in 1980. He had plans to bring one million people to the city, but six months prior to the event, the police revoked their permission due to civil unrest. Crusade canceled, plans dashed, hearts broken. What did Dr. Kim do? Well, he and his planning team, they went up to a mountain to pray and they spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. After the fast, they made their way back down the mountain over to the police station. One of the officers saw Dr. Kim and said, hi there, we wanted to actually tell you We've changed our mind. You can have your meeting. Amazing. Well, fasting can change the world because God works through prayer and fasting. This is not a prosperity gospel comment. It's a biblical comment. This is why God designed prayer. It wasn't just to encourage us. It wasn't just to sanctify us, though God does those things in prayer. Prayer isn't just about building a relationship with God or unifying believers. At a foundational level, we pray because God moves through the prayers of his people. We pray because God, way back in eternity past, has sovereignly ordained that he would move through our prayers. Now, is God sovereign? Yes. Is God in control? Yes. Has God, in a real sense, predestined all things to come to pass? Yes, yes, and yes. But in that same sovereignty, God has designed that he would move through prayer. God is sovereign, and we have responsibility. He chose from before time, though, that he will work through his people's petitions. That's why so many great acts of God have begun from movements of prayer. Revivals started with prayer. Church plants started with prayer and fasting. We fast to change the world. Well, there are many reasons to fast. I've already listed seven, but here's the, maybe the biggest one. I'll save it for last, number eight. We fast because we yearn for Jesus's return. Perhaps the greatest purpose of fasting is found in Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17. It's been called by many as the most important passage on fasting in the Bible. Listen to these words. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. Jesus tells his disciples right now, while I'm with you, don't fast. Don't worry, be happy, I'm here. The Old Testament promises have been kept. The Messiah is here. Fasting is for times of yearning and longing, but the day will come when I'm taken away, and then you will fast again. That's the key here. Then they will fast. You might not see a command to fast in the New Testament, but it's assumed that Christians will fast in some way. Then they will fast 
but only after Christ is gone. Jesus is talking here about his death, his resurrection, and ascension. After I rise, you will fast until I come back, till my second coming. That's the point of Matthew chapter nine. The patch of unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent the new reality that has come with Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. We have the spirit, but it's not fully consummated. The kingdom's not fully fully here yet. Jesus says, the old wineskins can't contain the new wine. Something has to change. It's a fasting with a new purpose. It's not for the Messiah to come. It's for the Messiah to return. The old wineskin is gone. A new one has come. The point, once we've tasted and seen how good Jesus is, we want more and more of him. There's an ache in our hearts for fellowship with him that can be expressed in fasting. We hunger for Christ and his return. We fast for the king's coming. Do you see that there in Jesus's words? Oh, friend, do you pray this prayer regularly? Lord Jesus, come. Are you hungry for Jesus to return? Do you pray this prayer? Have you ever prayed a Revelation 22 prayer? Come, Lord Jesus. Come back for your people. Thy kingdom come. Is this your normal prayer? Not just in times of desperation, but in good times. Are you crying out for Christ? See, in communion, we eat and remember Christ's death in the past. In fasting, we look ahead and we plead with him to return in the near future. Well, those are eight reasons why we fast. There are others I can point out, but let's move on to the third question in our main outline. How do Christians fast? We fast in any number of ways. The Bible doesn't prescribe specifics about how or when we fast. There's no command about the length of a fast. There was partial fasts. We saw that in Judges 20. A one-day fast in Jeremiah 36, three days in Esther 9, seven days in 1 Samuel 31, 21 days in Daniel 10. There were supernatural fasts of 40 days in Deuteronomy 9, 1 Kings 19, and of course, Jesus in Matthew 4. There were regular fasts like once a year on the Day of Atonement, occasional fasts as needed, continual partial fasts. John the Baptist, remember, eats just locusts and honey. Or in Daniel, where the men refrain from eating certain foods. Well, there's freedom on when and for how long we fast. We can fast regularly at the same time or occasionally as led by the Lord. There's no biblical requirement or mandate. But what the Bible does say is that we're to fast with humility. Humility must be our heart posture. No matter how long we fast, Matthew 6 tells us that distinctly Christian fasting is marked by Humility. The Pharisees, they did the exact opposite. They fasted two whole days, but in order to boast about it, Jesus says, when you fast, don't be a hypocrite. Don't fast for the purpose of looking good in your fasting. Fast with right heart motives. Well, the Pharisees, they, they weren't fasting in faith. They were fasting and praying really long prayers for admiration. John Piper calls this religious camouflage. It looked good, but it was just cloaked in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it often gives you exactly what you want, admiration. But here's the deal, that's all you get. Another way Christians fast is with focus. So two things, humility and focus. That's why we carve out time to pray. It's why we let our hunger remind us of God. Prayer is so important, we do whatever we can, including fasting, to help us focus and not be distracted. I love the illustration from the great reformer Martin Luther. A barber once asked Luther how to pray. He wrote a, a long letter in response. You can, you can read this online. In the letter, he reminds the barber 
that a good and attentive barber keeps his attention, his thoughts and eyes on the razor and on the hair. He keeps his mind on the task at hand, realizing that if he looks away, if he lets his mind wander, if he engages in too much conversation, he may cut his customer's ear or even his throat during a shave. The point Luther's making is that if anything is done well, it requires the full attention of all one's senses. He quotes a saying from his day, he who thinks of many things thinks of nothing and does nothing right. Luther then writes, how much more does prayer call for concentration and singleness of heart if it is to be a good prayer? So we see there's a connection with fasting and prayer. The goal of fasting is to direct us back time and time again to God in prayer. Well, here's an example of how this works. You're fasting, okay? You're going throughout your day, you're fasting, your thought is, I'm hungry. Oh, that's right, I'm fasting. And you're reminded of God. If you're burdened that the Lord would bring salvation to your children, and so you're fasting, you're, you're, you're praying, and throughout the day, when your stomach growls or you start feeling lightheaded, it reminds you, oh, oh, I'm hungry because I'm fasting. It redirects you. Your hunger reminds you and focuses you to pray for your child. It also means that we take the time away that we normally eat to pray. So instead of sitting down and making or having your breakfast, your lunch, or your dinner, you carve that time out and you use it to pray. It's focused prayer. Well, that brings us to our last section, question number four. How are we going to fast? How are we as a church going to fast? How are we going to apply these truths? Well, in light of these trying days, we as elders are going to encourage us as a church to fast. As we've said, fasting is the abstaining of food for a period of time for a specific spiritual purpose, some special spiritual purpose. So we realize some of you may not be able to totally abstain from food due to medical reasons. Some may only be able to partially abstain. You may have to fast from other things like television, social media. That's okay. This is not a new legalism. There's no need to explain yourself or send me an email. Well, another note just of clarification here is when we say fasting is the refraining from food, we don't mean refraining from water. We'd encourage you to drink plenty of water. If you need to, you could add juice to your fast. The point is in following an exact equation. Remember, we're not earning grace. What we are encouraging is for our church to fast on Thursdays, for us to do this together. If you can, let's do a one day long fast every Thursday this summer. You can refrain from eating all day on Thursday, but still drinking water, of course. Or if that's too much to try, you could do from dinner on Wednesday to dinner on Thursday. Or if this is your first time ever fasting, you could even just fast from a meal sometime on Thursday. And then you could just really be growing in your practice of this spiritual discipline. Many of you fast already. You could do more than a day if you like. Many of us like to do uh, 36-hour fasts. You could do Wednesday night and then eat on Friday morning. You could do 36 hours that way. We're not restricting it to one day. And if Thursdays don't work for whatever reason, then pick another day. Make sure you can take time to pray on that day. The hope is that the hunger pangs just would remind you throughout the day of your need for God. Instead of eating during those times, spend that time in prayer. Use those meals time, meal times, not to get extra work done, but to take your lunch break or dinner break. Go by yourself or join with others in the church who are fasting and pray. Get your Bible, just get it out open. You can just pray through the scriptures. Get your list of, of prayer requests with you. If you're a member of the church, have your membership directory at hand. Pray for one another. Again, we're encouraging you to fast, but we're not compelling you or forcing you to fast by any means. Kids and tweens, this is primarily a call to our church members, not to you. 
but you can participate in this as much as you'd like in conversation with your parents. Let me mention 10 general things to pray for during this time. I'm really good at all kinds of subpoints here today, so let me give you 10 more, 10 things to pray for. For protection from the virus, number one. Number two, for systemic racism and injustice to end. Three, for provision for our members, church, and city. Four, for wisdom for our rulers, for our spiritual growth in this time, for members to be discipling one another. Number seven, for our church to have a bold evangelistic witness. Eight, for God to save many souls during this pandemic. Nine, for plans for our church to gather again and for new churches to be planted. That's a pretty good general list. You could go back on the video, you could write those down. 10 things to pray through. But let's also pray specifically. You pray by name. Pray by name for your friends and family to be saved. Pray specifically for churches to be started. Think of Kuwait with Pastor Blaine. Think of Kochi with Pastor Benoit, Benjamin, and others. We've also seen updates from our church planters and ministry partners in the last few weeks. Pray for them. We saw some earlier in this video. Pray for their requests intentionally. Pray for us as elders. Pray for other members by name to grow in grace. Let's ask God to bring revival to our city. Even now, it may sound like the hardest time, the most miraculous time, but it's now. Let's pray. Let's pray and make sure that our prayers are God-centered and other-centered. I mean, have you noticed that oftentimes your prayers, I know mine do, they oftentimes revolve around and are centered on my needs, my wants, my desires. Now, when we're in trouble, we pray. When things go well, we, we may thank God, but remember what Jesus told us in John 15. We are to love others as Christ loved us. There's a love that's self-sacrificial. It's a love that takes our time away to pray. That's one of the best ways we can show love is by taking time to pray to God for others. And so Redeemer Church, let's fast. We're gonna do this on Thursdays throughout the summer. So next week, Pastor Morgs is gonna start off our Acts series. We're gonna take nine weeks to look at, look at some, of the, some of the most wonderful passages in the book of Acts. And what we wanna do during those nine weeks is on Thursdays beforehand, we want to fast and pray. And so Redeemer Church, let's ask God to do more than we could ask or imagine. Let's ask God to do in and through us what he did in the book of Acts in terms of seeing the gospel spread like wildfire. Let's ask him to do an amazing work through us that we'd be salt and that we would be light that he would bring people to faith and glorify his son. We know there's suffering. We know there's trials. We know that many of us are going through those difficulties. Oh, would in the midst of these trials, would Jesus make much of himself? And so Redeemer, let's fast. Let's pray. Let's watch God work. Pray with me now. Oh, Father, we come before you. We're fired up. We we. We hear these words, we see examples of fasting in the scriptures, we see examples of prayer, and we see that you move through the prayers of your people. We see in the book of Acts, we see it throughout church history. Oh, Father, we want that for us here. We want spiritual growth, we want spiritual vibrancy, we want boldness. Father, we want you to act, we want you to move. Would you do that with us? Would you do that in and through us as a church? Help us as we fast on Thursdays, Change us, change the ones around us. We know that you work in and through the fasting and prayers of your people, so work in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.